This morning you have before you Psalm 107 on page 8 in your bulletin, and I would encourage you to read it from there rather than in a Bible because, as you'll see, it's set up as a responsive reading, which is very common in the Psalms, especially one like this that has such refrains as a part of its structure. This one, many scholars think, is a celebration of Israel's return from exile some 500 or so years before the time of Christ. And the first three verses you'll see are really kind of gathering words as the people gather together. And then it's followed by various accounts of our primary reason for gratitude to God, which it will make abundantly clear. So read along with me responsively, joining in at the bold parts. You'll see those as, as you read along and join in with me there. Psalm 107. I'll give thanks to the Lord, for He is good, for His steadfast love endures forever. Let the redeemed of the Lord say so, whom He has redeemed from trouble and gathered in from the lands, from the east and from the west, from the north and from the south. Some wandered in desert wastes, finding no way to a city to dwell in, Hungry and thirsty, their soul fainted within them. Then they cried to the Lord in their trouble, and He delivered them from their distress. He led them by a straight way till they reached a city to dwell in. Let them thank the Lord for His steadfast love, for His wondrous works to the children of man. For He satisfies the longing soul, and the hungry soul He fills with good things. Some sat in darkness and in the shadow of death, prisoners in affliction and in irons, for they had rebelled against the words of God and spurned the counsel of the Most High. So he bowed their hearts down with hard labor. They fell down with none to help. Then they cried to the Lord in their trouble, and he delivered them from their distress. He brought them out of darkness and the shadow of death and burst their bonds apart. Let them thank the Lord for his steadfast love, for his wondrous works to the children of man, For he shatters the doors of bronze and cuts in two the bars of iron. Some were fools through their sinful ways, and because of their iniquities suffered affliction. They loathed any kind of food, and they drew near to the gates of death. Then they cried to the Lord in their trouble, and he delivered them from their distress. He sent out his word and healed them and delivered them from their destruction. Let them thank the Lord for his steadfast love for His wondrous works to the children of man, and let them offer sacrifices of thanksgiving and tell of His deeds in songs of joy. Some went down to the sea in ships, doing business on the great waters. They saw the deeds of the Lord, His wondrous works in the deep. For He commanded and raised the stormy wind, which lifted up the waves of the sea. They mounted up to heaven. They went down to the depths. Their courage melted away in their evil plight. They reeled and staggered like drunken men and were at their wit's end. Then they cried to the Lord in their trouble, and He delivered them from their distress. He made the storm be still, and the waves of the sea were hushed. Then they were glad that the waters were quiet, and He brought them to their desired haven. Let them thank the Lord for His steadfast love, for His wondrous works to the children of man. Let them extol Him in the congregation of the people, And praise Him in the assembly of the elders. He turns rivers into a desert, springs of water into thirsty ground. 
a fruitful land into a salty waste because of the evil of its inhabitants. He turns a desert into pools of water, a parched land into springs of water. And there he lets the hungry dwell and they establish the city to live in. They sow fields and plant vineyards and get a fruitful yield. By his blessing they multiply greatly and he does not let their livestock diminish. When they are diminished and brought low through oppression, evil, and sorrow, he pours contempt on princes and makes them wander in trackless wastes. But he raises up the needy out of affliction and makes their families like flocks. The upright see it and are glad, and all wickedness shuts its mouth. Whoever is wise, let him attend to these things. Let him consider the steadfast love of the Lord. The grass withers and the flowers fade. But the word of our God stands forever. Father, we pray that you would be with us. Would you grant to us your spirit of understanding so that we might see and believe and be made new this morning again. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. It's a a long psalm of thanksgiving. And if you're like me, the, the word thanksgiving takes your mind to the month of November, right? And you begin to think of all that comes with that. Pilgrims and Indians, pumpkins and turkeys and visits to grandma's house and all of those things that are just requisite of Thanksgiving. And those are all good and wonderful, fine things. But this psalm of Thanksgiving actually takes you to quite a different sort of place. It takes you to a troubled place a place where there are memories of the scattering of God's people to east and west and north and south. It's in some sense a reflection on seven decades of exile and all the trouble that came with that for God's people, that exile having been a measure of fatherly discipline. And this reflection takes the psalmist in a direction that no self-centered worldly person could possibly go. It takes him to consider the faithful, steadfast, covenant love of the Lord. This writer could not be more thankful because he recognizes that God could not be more faithful. And the reason that God is faithful is that God is love. That's a phrase that we know from Scripture that we, that we like and we embrace. The world embraces it, in fact. And, and even the unbelieving world, the non-Christian world, takes that phrase and says, look, if God is love, then I'm all for that. That's what I want. We all want a God who is loving. And we shape that according to our own designs. You know, if you're conservatively minded, then God is love to you might mean that God will accept you and receive you as long as you do the best that you can. If you do your part, then God will surely do his part. And if you're more liberally minded, you might think of it in terms of, well, there are just no criteria at all. God is love for everyone according to however they might shape him to be. But God's love, according to Scripture, is simply far more complex. It's far greater and far bigger than our notions of what love is. C.S. Lewis wrote a great book on love, the four loves, that that he takes and breaks down some of the Greek words from Scripture to describe different notions of what love is. And the four loves that he writes about are affection, 
the, the, the feeling that you might have for your children and, and affection and, and the, the love that you might have in that circumstance. Friendship, the love that you might have for a few who are close to you and know your soul. Romance, of course, the love that you would have for your husband or for your wife, for one only. And charity is the other word that Lewis uses. That love that's scattered more broadly to everyone, regardless of what they might give to you in return. Lewis writes of it in terms of the first three affection, friendship, and romance can be distorted in ways that become self-serving. But the fourth one, charity, is the love that's given regardless of circumstance. It's the love that's extended broadly to everyone around you, and you're given nothing for it in return. And Lewis writes of it as being a specifically Christian virtue, that the other types of love are subordinate to what he calls charity. This idea begins to get at the complexity of God's love as it's expressed in Scripture, maybe especially in the Old Testament, but surely in the New as well. In the Old Testament, there's a particular word for it, and we saw it in previous Psalms the last couple of weeks. It's the Hebrew word, Hesed, steadfast love in your scripture, your English translation, or maybe unfailing love or loving kindness. This is the love by which God has simply bound himself to us for our good. 107, this psalm is actually the last in a sequence of psalms, you should know. This afternoon or maybe tomorrow while you're shut in in the ice storm, you can take some time to read the previous ones which go with it. Psalm 104, 105, and 106 seem to follow a pattern together with 107. In Psalm 104, you read about the writer marveling at God's power in creation. In 105, he marvels at God's deliverance of his people from Egypt. In 106, he marvels at God's strong leading of his people through the wilderness and towards the promised land. And in 107, he marvels at God's grace in restoring his people from their exile. And throughout those psalms, you read phrases like this. He remembers his covenant forever to a thousand generations. Or, for their sake, he remembered his covenant. His covenant love for his people is the driving force of his faithfulness, the fuel for this covenant, is his steadfast love. And for this great love, the people together gather their voices and give thanks. Now, to give thanks for this love, you have to see some things about it. One is you have to see our need for this love, our particular needs for this love. And you see that in the refrain that you didn't help me recite. Did you hear the other refrain? There's a second one here. And you see it four times as well. In verse 6, you read, Then they cried to the Lord in their trouble, and he delivered them from their distress. In verse 13, Then they cried to the Lord in their trouble, and he delivered them from their distress. In verse 19, Then they cried to the Lord in their trouble, and he delivered them from their distress. And verse 28, you know it by now. Then they cried to the Lord in their trouble, and he delivered them from their distress. We live in trouble and distress. And the psalmist, very poetically, 
and beautifully and historic, with some historical accuracy gives us four types of circumstances that show our particular need for this covenant love. One of them you see in verse 4. This circumstance is for those who are the wandering lost. What does he say? Some wandered in desert wastes, finding no way to a city to dwell in. Now, a city to dwell in, in these ancient times, indicated a home. People needed a city to dwell in, because a city in that day had walls around it, and the walls provided protection and security, some sense of stability. And these wandering lost ones are wandering, and they can't find such a place. They can't find a home. Now, this is something that's hard for us middle-class Americans, by and large, to get a grasp of because we have so much. And it's such a great blessing from God that we have what we have. But it's also difficult in our circumstances, often, to empathize with the wandering lost ones. But this was a reality for Israel. They had known Hundreds of years of stability under kings, some better than others, but still hundreds of years of stability as a country, as a people behind their walls. And now they had known exile. God had sent them into exile. They had wandered off being led by their enemy to a strange land. And even today, for hundreds of thousands of Christians worldwide today, this week, you, you know it. I mean, you, you read the news, you hear the news, you, you know that this is happening for Christians worldwide. In, in Iraq, in, in Syria, in many countries of Africa, people who have been displaced by the, the military efforts of Boko Haram and others, hundreds of thousands of Christians are displaced and wandering and lost. They can't find a city. They can't find a home with walls to provide them with security. We have a harder time empathizing with that ourselves, perhaps. And you may not get to see your need from this particular perspective because of the security that you know in your life. Or maybe you will. But the other one, the second one, is maybe a little easier for us to access. That's the circumstance of the imprisoned ones, verse 10, which says, Some sat in darkness and in the shadow of death, prisoners in affliction and in irons. This is, in its historical context, is a psalm referring to the bondage of people in foreign places. Israel had been taken away to a foreign place, to a, an enemy country, and placed in bondage there. Think of Daniel and his friends, who were taken not so much in bondage, but as servants to the court of a foreign king. Or think even better of the, the commoners among the Israelites, those who were taken and perhaps placed in bondage, or maybe even worse, the kings of Israel and Judah who were led away with rings in their noses, their arms in shackles as prisoners of a foreign king. But the trick here is this. Whose prison is it? If you listen carefully and, and read the psalm carefully, you recognize this prison is God's prison because... What do you read? They had rebelled against the words of God. They have a spiritual problem. That's really the problem at heart here is a spiritual problem. They had rebelled against the, the words of God. They had spurned 
the counsel of the Almighty. And this we can understand, can't we? I mean, this we can, can feel a little bit closer to home because we, after all, as Americans, we kind of think we know the way. We, we know how to go and how to forge out a life for ourselves and to make our way in this world to achieve some significance in some sense, as we saw some weeks ago, to get back into the Garden of Eden. We know the way in, or so we think. We can create a way, and so we recognize that we spurn the counsel of the Almighty, and we are in bondage, imprisoned by a jail of our own making of sorts. And then there are the afflicted ones. Verse 17, some were fools through their sinful ways, and because of their iniquities suffered affliction. Okay, so here you can think of the Proverbs. The Proverbs are full of examples of this sorts of thing. One proverb says this, Whoever gives to the poor will not want, but he who hides his eyes will be cursed. Sinful ways, affliction as a result. There it is, right there in the proverb. Or it might be simply because of our, our lack of wisdom. Here's another proverb. This is one of my favorite ones. Whoever meddles in a quarrel not his own is like one who takes a passing dog by the ears. You know what that means, don't you? If you take a passing dog by the ears, you're likely to get bitten. And if you enter into a quarrel not your own, the same might happen. And affliction comes because of your lack of wisdom. But sometimes we bring trouble on ourselves, affliction, maybe not because of, of our sins or even our lack of wisdom, but just because of our ignorance. When we lived in Georgia one time, I had, uh, along with a neighbor, a pile of mulch delivered to our driveway and, and dumped by a dump truck in the driveway. And my neighbor and I spread this mulch around in our, in our beds with a wheelbarrow and shovel. And a few hours later, I got a fever. Suddenly I had this fever and my face turned red and I thought I was getting the flu or something, but it was in July. And I was sick with fever and it took a couple of days for it to go away. Didn't really realize what it was until maybe a year later we were on vacation. We had gone to Canada and we lit a fire in the fireplace with some cedar logs. And as soon as the fumes and smoke from those cedar logs arose from the fire, I got a fever. I didn't know I was allergic, but apparently I'm allergic. Then I knew, just because of my own ignorance, I suffered affliction and brought it upon my, myself. You know, we bring affliction of trouble and distress upon ourselves because not only do we spurn God's counsel, but we heed our own words more than we do His. So there are the afflicted. And then fourthly, there are the overwhelmed. Verse 23, some went down to the sea in ships to do business, and there they saw the deeds of the Lord, His wondrous works. He commanded and raised the stormy wind and lifted up the waves of the sea. They mounted up to heaven and then down to the depths. This is the perfect storm, if you ever saw that movie. This is the picture of, of riding up high on the waves and then crashing down into the depths because God has called His storm into being and man is not big enough or strong enough to combat it. This one is overwhelmed by the power of nature. One time I got to visit Portland, Oregon, long before Aaron Morris moved there. 
And I visited a friend there and borrowed his car and drove up to Mount St. Helens, which is not far across the border into Washington. I'd never been to Mount St. Helens before, but I always wanted to see it since it had exploded in a violent eruption so many years before. And I went up there to see it and and stood in the visitor's center, and a park ranger explained to me what I was seeing in the valley out below. He said, you see those boulders out there? They're a mile, two, three miles away. Do you see those boulders? They're bigger than your house. They're bigger than a building in downtown Dallas, those boulders are. And they used to be a part of that mountain before it exploded in an eruption and sent those boulders flying a mile or two or three miles across the valley floor. Amazing, unbelievable to me to recognize that. There's so much of that in the world. You know, a tsunami or an earthquake or a hurricane, hurricane, the imagery here is simply to show you that the power of God in nature is vastly beyond the measure of man. Verse 27 tells us that these men were stumbling around as though drunk and they were at their wits end. In other words, their wisdom and their skill simply could not match what they faced in the world around them. One commentator, Derek Kidner, says it this way. He says, in a world of gigantic forces, we live by God's permission, not by our management. We are too small to match might for might with this world, and therefore we face trouble and distress. You might have wondered why we read that New Testament reading a while ago from Matthew 8. It was that story of a couple of demon-possessed men who meet Jesus on the other side of the lake in his boat, and they come to Jesus, and the demons are speaking. They're afraid. They know exactly who Jesus is, and they cry out to him, Jesus, what are you going to do with us? And he cast them out into a herd of pigs. And it's an interesting and almost humorous story. All Well, three of the Gospels tell us the story, two of them in a slightly different way, but it's just a picture of men in distress. These are men who are lost and wandering. These are men who are imprisoned in the depth of their souls. These are men who are afflicted by the evil that is there, and these are men who are overwhelmed by the power that's greater than they are. These are men in distress, and it's a picture of all of us. It's a picture of the fact that you and I together need this covenant love of God, this steadfast, unfailing, and powerful love of God, which is our hope of redemption. But how does God express this love to us? His expression takes a few different shapes. It takes the shape of deliverance, for one. He shows these four circumstances, and and all of them get the same treatment. Again, the refrain, remember, and he delivered them from their distress. They all get the same treatment, but they're not all the same. And so the expression of deliverance comes in various forms, if you see it there in the psalm, showing different facets of who God is. So, for example, the wandering lost in verses 4 and following, what do they need? They're looking for security. They're looking for a home. But what do they need? They need a loving father. They need someone who is strong, who can take their hand and lead them by a straight way, as the psalmist says, till they reach the city to dwell in. They need a father who can provide for them security. I mean, that is, after all, what every good father wants to provide for his family. He wants to provide security and so the psalmist takes advantage of that metaphor to show us that of all the poetic metaphors in the bible god as our father is surely one of the most powerful ones that there is that 
shows us his love for us and the fact that he does for us what no earthly father could perfectly do. He provides for us security in himself. But for some, the idea of God as a father is actually a distraction because of baggage that they have from their own childhood. That's often the case. And so there are other metaphors. The next one is for the imprisoned. What do they need? They're they're in prison after all. They need a powerful king who can lead them to freedom. And that's what God does. Remember, this was God's prison after all. And a king, a good king, leads his people to freedom. Even if that freedom is from their own rebellious hearts. Even if that freedom is a need as a result of their own self-bondage. Remember, who put Israel into Egypt back in the day? God sent them there, and there they were enslaved for hundreds of years. And who put the divided kingdom of Israel into exile in Babylon? Who did that? God did that. God, by his sovereign hand, designed that imprisonment for his people as fatherly discipline. And they cried out, and he brought them out of darkness and burst their bonds apart. I want to read a few verses to you from Isaiah 45. It seems that this writer maybe had Isaiah 45 in mind in part of what he wrote here. This is in the context of God preparing to deliver his people out of exile and return them to their land. And Isaiah wrote this, Thus says the Lord to his anointed one, to Cyrus. Now Cyrus was the king, not of Israel, but of the enemy. And he's God's anointed one whom God has chosen to do this. Thus says the Lord to Cyrus, whose right hand I have grasped to subdue nations before him and to loose the belts of kings, to open doors before him that gates may not be closed. This is what he says to Cyrus. I will go before you and level the exalted places. I will break in pieces the doors of bronze and cut through the bars of iron. I will give you the treasures of darkness and the hordes and secret places that you may know that it is I, the Lord, the God of Israel, who call you by name. God spoke to Cyrus the king, not of Israel, but the king of the enemy, and said, I'm going to lead you, Cyrus, to break the bonds, to break open the doors of bronze and to free my people. And this is what this psalmist is reflecting on. God brought them out of darkness as a powerful king. But he also expresses it for the afflicted in a different sort of way. They need something completely different, don't they? Those in verse 17, the the fools who through their sinful ways found affliction, they need a wise counselor. And this is what God does for them. And he deals with them this way. When they cry out, he sent out his word and healed them and delivered them from their destruction. He was for them a wise counselor. He gave them his word. And he does for them what no earthly counselor can ever perfectly do. He doesn't just give them good advice. He doesn't just suggest to them what they ought to be doing in their personal life at home. No, he healed them from their destruction. Now, this is where many misunderstand Christianity. Many think of Christianity as just good advice. Read the Bible and it'll tell you all kinds of good ideas for how to make your life more practically 
effective and better and more peaceful. But that's just not what Christianity is at all. That's not what God as a wise counselor does for the afflicted. No, he goes to them, he gives them his word, and he heals them from their destruction. He does what no earthly counselor could ever do. And then fourthly, for the overwhelmed, they have a different sort of need, don't they? Those overwhelmed by the power of God in nature, they need an omnipotent friend. And that's what he gives to them. After all, he explains here in verse 24 that his wondrous works are for the purpose of humbling you. They went out to sea and they saw his wondrous works in the deep. But in verse 29, he explains that also those same wondrous works are to save you. They cried out, and he made the storm to be still, and the waves of the sea were hushed. So he does what no earthly friend could ever even begin to do. He commands the waves and the seas. He commands the mountains and all that he created and brings peace to his people. God is all of these things, depending on where you find yourself. And to all of them, this expression takes the shape through reversal as well. So it's not just deliverance, but it's reversal. In verse 33 and following, the psalmist enters a different phase of the psalm. He's done with the four stanzas before, and he shifts gears a bit, doesn't he? In verse 33, you know, you remember his discipline. He turns rivers into a desert, springs of water into dry ground, a fruitful land into a salty waste because of evil. Yes, the Israelites knew that, but he also does the reverse. Look at verse 35. He turns a desert into pools of water. He turns a parched land into springs of water, and there he lets the hungry dwell. Not only does God deliver his people, but he reverses their circumstances. Do you recognize the ways that your own rebellious heart has led you to dry ground and to salty waste? Do you, do you see some of the ways? You know, maybe your angry impatience has alienated your children from you. Maybe your fearful worry has frozen your marriage. Maybe your controlling demands have isolated you from your friends. Maybe your addictive loves have destroyed the ones who care for you. Maybe. When by your own folly you have broken the love that surrounds you, then there's only one love that remains. And do you know what it is? It's the steadfast, unfailing, covenant love of the Lord. And there's a third way that he works here because he doesn't, not, he doesn't just let their well-being diminish. The, the psalmist writes in verse 38 and 39 and following, but when their well-being does diminish, verse 39, because of oppression and evil and sorrow, he makes the oppressors wander in trackless wastes. Did you, did you see that? Did you notice that? He reverses their fortunes as well. He makes the oppressors to wander in trackless wastes because he's protective of his own people. A couple of weeks ago, you probably saw on the news, or maybe you drove by it, that wreck over at Walnut Hill Lane and Abrams. It's not far from our house. 
there was a high-speed chase through Dallas. I think a guy had robbed a store or something and stolen a car, and the police were chasing him. High-speed through east into East Dallas at Walnut Hill, and he flew up to that intersection and crashed into some cars that were in front of him, and he was stopped there. The helicopter coverage showed the whole thing, and a woman, Jessica Leesman was her name, jumped out of the minivan into which he had crashed, and she rushed to his car not to help him. (laughs) She went to stop him because she was so angry. She had one of her children in the car. She was on her way to pick up another child, and her third child had died of illness just months before. This mother was not going to suffer some fool risking the lives of her family anymore. She rushed to his car and opened the door and pulled him out and along with her friend threw the man to the ground and the police apprehended him. She was not going to suffer this fool. God likewise is not going to suffer the fool of oppressors who come after his people. He's going to make them to wander in trackless waste and he's going to protect his people as an expression of his love. But there's, of course, a fruit of this love as well. And you know what it is. It's thanksgiving. Our thanksgiving to God for this love, it takes shape in some different ways. One is in verse 43, which we read together. You know, whoever is wise, let him attend to these things. Let them consider the steadfast love of the Lord. In a sense, I think the psalmist is telling you to puzzle over it, to ponder it to recognize that this is beyond your comprehension. This is something that you really need to struggle with and think about because it's a bigger, more complex love than you can express for one another because it's the love of God in his covenant for his people, and it's bigger than you know. Just like any parent will tell their children, I love you more than you can possibly understand until you grow up and have children yourself, then you'll begin to know. It's even more than that. God's complex covenant love requires that you consider, that you attend to it, that you struggle with it, and there's a danger in doing otherwise. Psalm 106 says this, Our fathers, when they were in Egypt, did not consider your wondrous works. They did not remember the abundance of your steadfast love, and so guess what? They rebelled against you. That's the consequence of not considering it. You know, so if if you're not a Christian... If you're not a Christian and and wonder how does this work, how does one become a Christian, what's the compelling reason for someone ought, ought to be a Christian? Why should I be? Here it is right here. Let the wise attend to these things. Let them consider the steadfast love of the Lord. This is what you need to wrestle with. How is it that this that this unfathomable and enormous love of God can reach your soul? It is with his love that he does that. Of course, the fruit of this takes expression in the different refrains of the psalm. You know, let them thank the Lord, for he satisfies longing souls, for he shatters doors of bondage, and, and so on. And, and he speaks of, 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 of giving thanks for the wondrous works of God to the children of man. And love like this is, is not fair, it's gracious. It's gracious beyond measure. Now, that New Testament reading about the the demon-possessed men that came to Jesus at his boat at the side of the lake, it takes shape in in, um, 
Mark and Luke, in slightly different ways, they tell us a little bit more, actually, about that story. And, and in their, their accounts of it, there's just one man. Maybe the one is the spokesman for the two. And the one comes to Jesus and, and begins to speak to him. And, and after Jesus casts the demons out into the pigs, this one man, you can imagine, this guy has for years been living in the graveyard. He's not worn clothes for years. He's got chains wrapped around his wrists. He's a naked man with wild hair, and he's unshaven. He's a nasty character. And Jesus has freed him from his bondage. And the man says to Jesus, Jesus, can I come with you? Can I get in the boat and come with you where you're going? And Jesus says to the man, no. No, you can't come with me. Now, you might think that that's because the guy might, you know, crowd the boat and it might be kind of awkward in the boat. We don't want this guy. He smells bad in the boat. That's not the reason. Jesus tells the man, no. You go tell the world of God's wondrous works for the children of men such as yourself. And guess what? He did. This guy went into the city nearby and told of all that God had done for him. Now, can you imagine? Can you imagine a more ridiculous missionary? I mean, part of the fruit of this love that the man had received was not just that he began to consider the steadfast love of the Lord but that he went and he told about the wondrous works of God for the benefit of the wild-haired, smelly children of men. And it's amazing, isn't it? This is what this psalm is after. This is what this psalm of thanksgiving wants to lead you to, to recognize that what God has given you is his steadfast love. And it cannot be taken away. Because of Jesus, it cannot be taken away. And therefore, let the redeemed of the Lord say, We give thanks to the Lord, for He is good, for His steadfast love endures forever. May we pray. O Lord, we give you thanks for your steadfast love. Together, as your people, we recognize hopefully more and more as you work in and among us, that you love us beyond measure and that your love for us is complicated and wild and deep and strong. Oh Lord, would you grant to us increasing faith to trust that you have loved us and therefore that we might give you thanks out of the life of Christ that you give in his name and for his sake we pray. Amen. Sisters, last month during our alms collection, we collected $3,247.